for the month of August this summer, we're doing a series called Choose Your Own Adventure, and it's inspired by those books, the Choose Your Own Adventure series of books that I read when I was a kid. I loved them. I had a whole slew of them on my bookshelf. And what I thought I would do is just open it up to the community to say, hey, what are issues that you would like to talk about? What are topics or questions or struggles that you have as a Christian or in terms of what it means to walk faithfully as a Christian? And so we've been walking through week after week, kind of compiling and sometimes trying to cohere questions that overlap together uh, on, on Sundays and, and kind of looking into God's word to discern what they say. And today we're dealing with all of the questions that came in, we're kind of orbiting around uh, LGBT uh, issues, uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, uh, gay marriage, um, both in terms of biblically what do... Um, kind of what does the Bible say about these issues and also practically how do we live out our faith as it relates to our interaction with those uh, friends, family, community, co-workers um, who, are, who identify as LGBT. Now, I want to say right from, the offs, uh, right from the onset that there is so much to say on this topic. So we're not going to solve all of the uh, intricate intricate and, and kind of jugular issues and problems related to, to these topics today. What I hope to do today is to build some momentum in a positive direction, hopefully challenge everybody in the room, regardless of where you come from as your default position with some of these things. But I'm not going to be able to say everything. And so I say this to those who are listening, to those who are listening to the podcast, uh, please extend patience and extend grace for me, not just in terms of what I might say, but also what I don't say. You're going to get to the end of this time, and inevitably, almost everyone's going to say, I can't believe he didn't touch on this element of the discussion. And then it's easy to infer, well, therefore, Jeff doesn't care. Or and so we don't want that kind of arguments from silence to, to begin to emerge. Uh, I have talked with a few people. We are going to be holding some uh, Q&A nights so are going to be open to the community. We're going to be holding more uh, kind of extended teaching and learning uh, and wrestling times uh, in the months ahead. And so this is really the start for uh, a conversation that I know many of you have said, I want to have this conversation. I don't know how to enter into this conversation. I don't know how to move through this conversation well. And so we're going to start giving you some rails to run on in a way that is respectful and God-honoring and hopefully is a blessing to both you and to uh, this broader community. I want to start by quoting Ron Sider in his great article, which I commend to you. You should all read it. It's called Tragedy, Tradition, and Opportunity in the Homosexuality Debate. It's free. Just Google that. Ron Sider, Tragedy, Tradition, and Opportunity in the Homosexuality Debate. It's via Christianity Today. Uh, let's start with naming one of the regret, regrettable elephants in the room. Ron Sider, in writing about this issue and how evangelical Christians have tended to deal with it, have said, if the devil had designed a strategy to discredit the historic Christian position on sexuality, he could not have done much better than what the evangelical community has actually done in the last several decades. So it's very important on the onset of this that we recognize that however well-intended some of the efforts by Bible-believing, strong evangelical Christians were, there's been a lot of damage done to the LGBT community, to children within families, to families, to 
spheres of relationships to our public witness for Christ and there's been a lot of hurt and so no one, we have to understand we're not starting this conversation from a relational place of neutrality. Most people, we might argue rightly or wrongly, but the reality is most people, if they find out or um, if you tell them that you're a Christian and then you caveat that by saying evangelical Christian or Bible-believing Christian or born-again Christian, one of the things that's going to run to the top of their head is they're going to presume that you are, uh, that you hate gay people, that you are anti-gay people in all forms and all expressions and everything that that might mean taken to its extreme. And the evangelical church has a lot of responsibility to bear in terms of where those presumptions and assumptions have come from. So we're not entering into this conversation uh, the conversation is live, it's charged right from the start. It's not something hypothetical or something that everyone can sit down with and say, yeah, this is interesting. Let's have a stimulating conversation. This is jugular for almost all of it. It's certainly a living issue for, for many of us in terms of uh, family members, in terms of our own maybe struggles with uh, same-sex attraction in our workplaces and in the, certainly in the flux and flow of, of the Nelson community. This is not abstract, and so we have to enter into it with a the humility commensurate with that. Here are my priorities. My priorities today are speaking the truth in love. Ephesians says that's the way we grow up into maturity in Christ. We hold in dynamic tension the desire to speak in love with grace, with care, with compassion into all issues. Uh, but we also are to uphold truth and we're to speak truth. And it's easy for Christians to want to speak truth without love, it's easy and tempting for some of us to want to speak love without any truth. But maturity in Christ means we uncomfortably hold those things together and say, where does this lead us? But it's also a priority to speak the truth in love in a way that is completely clothed with gentleness and respect. Peter, when he's writing to Christians in a very pagan environment says, this is what I want you to do. In your own lives, in your own hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Christ as Lord. Always be prepared, though, to give an answer for anybody who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And I think what's inferred there is always give, be prepared to give an account for anyone who wants to understand what you believe and why you live out your faith. Um, but do this with gentleness and respect. And if there's one biblical command that I think the evangelical church has conveniently kind of turn a blind eye to, it's probably this one, that we haven't done a good job of communicating our position in a way that is gentle and respectful to those who might, be, uh, might misunderstand the implications of what, we're, of what we're saying or might feel hurt or attacked by it. Peter says, what I want you to do is I want you to speak with such gentleness and respect to the other person that even if they sought to slander you, even if they thought they, they were intending to twist your words, they ultimately couldn't. They would just kind of say, man, I totally disagree with where Jeff is coming from, but I, I, it, it's, kind of, it's good to connect with him. I, he's very gentle, he's very respectful, he's very gracious, he's very loving. I wouldn't mind having another conversation with him. Um, and I don't agree with him, but I can't hate the guy because he doesn't hate me. So I think that has to frame the conversation as well. And then lastly, the authority of God's word has to be a priority when we're looking at any issue, but especially ones that are emotionally jugular and have such ramifications and potential wake 
of both blessing and destruction depending on how we move through them. We submit to God's authority. We don't ask God's word to submit to a different authority, including ourselves or the way we think things should be. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Don't think that I've come to kind of do away with any kind of moral framework that we've understood until now. And now I'm just introducing something radically new. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to show you both in word and deed what living it out in its fullness and being a witness to its fullness looks like. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's very important for me, first as a Christian, but also as a pastor, to make sure we're grounding all of our reflections back into the word of God and really seeing what God says on this and uh, allowing all of, our, all of my prejudices and presumptions and assumptions and even desires for what I might want to be the case to fall under the authority of God's word. So question number one, and this is kind of the, the framing question for the whole thing. How come some denominations fully accept lifestyles of LGBTQ population while others don't? How is scripture used to back both of these points of view? It's a great question. It's within this community, within certainly the Western Christian world, there are absolutely uh, churches that would um, promote themselves as, sometimes they call themselves fully affirming or theologically affirming, uh, uh, pro-LGBT And there are churches uh, like ours that don't posture or present themselves like that. And the difference, of course, is going to come down to how we not just read Scripture, but um, how we read and apply it coming out of a certain understanding of how we're supposed to interpret it. None of us come to the Bible... um, blank slate neutral. We come with our own prejudices and understandings and educations and you come to the Bible as a man, you read it slightly different as a woman, you uh, young, old, and so there are what's called interpretational or hermeneutical movements that we all have in deciding how am I supposed to understand this verse, how am I supposed to apply it? And so the really simple answer is that these two churches read and apply the Bible differently. Let's start with what I will call the biblical or traditional view. Some might say it's unfair for me, it's a power play, it's a power grab for me to call this the biblical view that I'm about to present because it infers that the other view is then obviously not biblical. Um, But I'm calling it the biblical view and the traditional view for a reason and that is because for the vast majority of um, Christian history up until maybe 20 to 40 years ago, there was no contention for this view. There was no contention amongst Protestants, Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, before them, Orthodox Jews. No one read these texts any differently in the implications of them. And so these texts, and you probably have heard of them, they're sometimes by the, I'll call the affirming camp um, for now, they're called the clobber passages. These are the go-to texts that kind of state that our proof text, there it says, it proves it right there in the Bible that homosexuality is wrong. But this is something that's really, really important to 
that both Jewish theologians and Christian theologians of all stripes recognize that the Bible doesn't actually say anything specifically about the homosexual condition or orientation. Lots of historians will argue the idea of homosexual orientation isn't really going to emerge until about the 19th century. The Bible has nothing to say about that topic, whether or not people uh, uh, kind of growing up and as their uh, sexuality unfolds, they have same-sex attraction by default. What the Bible speaks to, and both uh, conservative and uh, liberal, pro-gay and uh, traditional view theologians will all recognize is what the Bible uh, clearly speaks to is homosexual behavior. So that's a bit of a distinction there that will be important, and we'll talk about why that is in a little bit. One is Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 18 is an entire chapter that essentially spells out sexual ethics and boundaries for the nation of Israel. Verse 22, do not have sexual, sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Again, knowing, understand the inference of uh, that verse. Not that the person is detestable or that the person is an abomination as other, denomina- or other translations might say, older translations. The act is. So the Bible's making a distinction between maybe orientation, inclinations of the heart versus actual behavior and activity. Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible, by far the most explicit reference to sexual acts between men uh, in the Holiness Code, it's under penalty of death in Leviticus uh, 2013, and it's strictly prohibitive. There's been uh, no Orthodox Jewish theologian is going to read this text and say anything other than, yep, part of the no-go area for sexual ethics is there is not to be any um, sex outside of a covenanted marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That, of course, gets adopted by Christian theologians later as kind of the standard view, and part of it is rooted in Leviticus 18. One of the things that I'll mention um, uh, right off the bat, because this is pretty popular both online and in conversations, you, you can tend to hear, well, Leviticus, there's a lot of weird stuff in Leviticus. Leviticus, Leviticus says you can't do a lot of things. Not allowed to eat shellfish. Not allowed to eat or wear clothes that have mixed fibers. So this is a classic example of people cherry-picking uh, verses where it's like, well, yeah, this doesn't apply to today, obviously. Oh, but this one does. Leviticus 18.22, for sure it does. And a lot of Christians don't know how to respond to that. because it, like it sounds like a pretty good argument, except that it fails to uh, understand the distinction in Leviticus between Israel's call to be distinctively holy in certain cultural practices versus God's moral framework and law that he intended all the nations to abide by. In Leviticus 18, you're going to find God creating boundaries in sexual ethics that aren't just about homosexuality, they're about incest, they're about bestiality. And then at the end of Leviticus 18, uh, God says to Israel, these things are detestable to you and you're not to do these things because for th- these are the reasons why I brought judgment on these other nations. So God is saying, these are things that I don't intend for any human being as image bearers of God to participate in. When you get to things like shellfish or mixed fibers, God never says, hey, you know why I judged the Canaanites? Because they wore cotton and polyester together. God never says that. He says, that's for you to do because I want you to be a living embodiment that you are distinct, that the lack of um, mixed fibers means that you are not mixed in your devotion. You are living fully for me so that other people see you 
they look at you and they say, oh, they, wear, they have a distinctive dress. They, they wear their beards a certain way. They have certain practices. But those practices are cultural. Yes, they were commanded by God. But that's why when Christians, uh, uh, when, when Jesus comes and he says, I don't abolish the law, he's not saying uphold everything. There are some things that were only for Israel. And that's why Christians have said, yes, ethical boundaries are still in place, but we can live and clothe ourselves with polyester and cotton because the cultural commands of Leviticus that were meant for God's people Israel at that time aren't binding. Instead, what we're to do is to clothe ourselves with Christ. People should look at us, interact with us, and say, I know that there is a God because that person is so loving and gracious and good and kind and caring. So Leviticus 18, 1 Timothy 1.10, 1 Corinthians 6.9. 1 Timothy 1 says, for the sexually immoral, those who are practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, for liars, for perjurers, for what else, what else is contrary to sound doctrine will not inherit the kingdom of God. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that all wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men. The same word is used in both. One gets translated practicing homosexuality. One is men who have sex with men. The word that is kind of debated there is asenakotai. And the reason why it's debated exactly what it means is that there's no example of that word in any other extant Greek literature in that time. And what that means is we can't look at how other people use that word and say, oh, well, what was Paul talking about in this case? Or what was the Spirit speaking through Paul as it relates to this? So some people um, in the uh, affirming camp might say, well, we don't really know what this means because it's, it's a word that Paul seems to have made up. But the traditional view will say that is true. Paul did make up that word, but he made it up by combining two words from the Greek translation of the Septuagint of Leviticus 18.22. Um, arsinokotai, arsino means male, kotai means lying or betting. Um, and those two words are side by side in the Greek translation of Leviticus 18.22. So the traditional view will say it's very clear what Paul meant. Paul was saying those who practice men lying with men, um, dot, 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 will not inherit the kingdom of God or is, are living outside of God's uh, purposes for what it means to be a Christian. So those are passages that kind of get debated, but the traditional view would say, no, that's pretty clear that it's referring to any and all homosexual activity, and there doesn't seem to be any give in terms of context or um, intentionality of that. Just the act itself is outside of God's um, moral desire. And lastly, Romans 1, 26 and 27, Paul is kind of stating a, a grand case for the history of redemption and he, that he gets to verse 26 and he says, um, because of this, because of idolatry, because of people turning away from the true and living God, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations for, with women and they were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received them in themselves the due penalty for their error. So there seems to be a connection between idolatry, turning away from the living God, and then God handing over 
to desires and to expressions that are unnatural. And they don't, and when biblical writers speak on, about things being not natural, what they don't mean is if you look in the created world, there's no other instances of uh, homosexual, what we think was homosexual behavior in animals. They're saying it's unnatural, meaning it doesn't align itself with God's intentions coming out of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God made man and a woman, and that is kind of the archetypal uh, design and purpose behind um, sexuality and gender and uh, biological sex. Now, those are particular verses that tend to get brought up, but they're actually not the reason, the main reason why the traditional view says we believe that the only form of sexual expression, which is God-glorifying and God-honoring, is between a man and a woman covenanted together within marriage. It's not just because of these verses that speak against homosexuality. Um, it's because, as Ron Sider says in that same um, article that I mentioned before, he says, the primary biblical case against homosexual practice isn't the few texts that explicitly mention it. Rather, it's the fact that again and again the Bible affirms the goodness and beauty of sexual intercourse, and everywhere, without exception, the norm is sexual intercourse between a man and a woman committed to each other for life. Um, Pentecostal theologian Michael Brown says it this way. He says, the Bible is a heterosexual book, not meaning it's only for heterosexuals, but the entire framing narrative is that which presumes and assumes heterosexual, um, heterosexual expression is, is the major way that narratively the Bible unfolds. It presumes God's design and intention to meet man and woman, right? When there are instructions, it's things like honor your father and mother. You're presuming a certain thing about the nature of the family. Uh, New Testament commands, husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. There's a, there's a delineation there. When God calls Israel to himself, he says, you know, I, I, am the, um, I am the bridegroom and you are my bride. And adultery is used consistently in the Old Testament to talk about God's relationship with his people and how it goes wrong in terms of Israel being like a, a, a strang uh, wife. In the New Testament, you have Christ, uh, the, the bride, right? The bridegroom and the bride is church. You have new heavens and new earth, the coming together, this, this consummation. Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the sexual union being mysteriously the closest thing that we can get to this side of heaven of being the, the, the passionate, intimate relationship that Christ has towards his church. He talks about that in Ephesians 5, Revelation, uh, end of Revelation, coming together of heaven and earth. That's, again, very much meant to be a complementary a sexual uh, metaphor of union now. Now the dwelling of, of God is with men, right? We don't just leave earth and go to heaven. Heaven and earth become one. And so the entire kind of movement of the Bible runs on these rails of heterosexual expression. So that, in a nutshell, would be the traditional biblical view. That, that's where it's coming from. And again, this is very important to highlight. This is not being fueled by hatred towards people who are gay. This isn't being fueled uh, by bigotry. This is simply people who are trying to wrestle with what the text says and what are its implications regardless of how challenging that might be even for them personally. There are many, many gay Christians in this traditional view who have said, for me, I, I understand this to mean that I can't get married in a way that glorifies God as a Christian. Ergo, I'm not going to ever be able to have 
a sexual relationship in the way that a heterosexual Christian neighbor of mine will, will be able to if they get married. And that's, that's a tremendously difficult uh, cross and burden to bear. But they say, but that's where the texts lead me. And my happiness is secondary to holiness in terms of honoring Jesus. So there are many celibate gay Christians who have this view. Now the pro-affirming view, they, uh, I think that's the latest language, uh, is, is, is kind of affirming theology or a, a pro, a, yeah, kind of affirming theology. Um, is, again, I don't like that term because it implies that if you're non-affirming, there's all kinds of different ways uh, that could be misconstrued, right? If I'm not affirming to someone, does that mean I hate them? So, but I use biblical, so I'm going to give the other side the, the, the affirming view. They're going to say there's four principles that they say through which they reject the idea that um, all and any forms of homosexual expression are wrong or sinful or not God-glorifying. So they would say, number one, apples and oranges. They would say the scripture... The, the scriptures that are talked about, Leviticus 18, 1 Timothy, Corinthians, those don't deal with mature, non-exploitive, consensual people with homosexual orientations who want to commit to each other and channel their sexuality in a way that brings glory to God. Or is just, or is just uh, if, if they aren't Christian, just in a way that is not exploitive and consensual and through which they can maybe adopt and build a family and be part of a civic society. So what they do is they don't deny that the verses say what they say. Um, what they will argue is that they don't apply to particular forms of gay relationships that we know today aren't inherently harmful. So they look at Romans 1, for example, and say, it seems to be that Romans 1 is inferring that um, if you go towards idolatry, then, well, it seems to infer that the men were heterosexual, but they gave up those desires and adopted homosexual activity. Well, that doesn't apply to people who've just only never known homosexual orientation. So that verse is condemning people who out of overlust or hypersexuality kind of engage in any forms of sexuality that are actually against their nature just because they can. But you can't use that verse to condemn two people who have said, we're gay by orientation, we want to get married, we want to build a life together. So they're going to kind of say, these verses don't deal, we're comparing apples and oranges. The Bible didn't have the categories to say, what do we deal with if hypothetically a society was built where you could have two consenting, non-exploitive people who have homosexual orientation move into marriage together? What do we do about that? They would say, we, we don't get a lot of direct uh, um, ins- instruction from Scripture for that. And they'll say, the fruit test of affirming theology, they will say, when you see a gay couple who does come together and they are, seem to be flourishing and it seems to be something that by any other metric that we would look at another relationship, it seems to be healthy and not hurting anybody. Uh, if the fruit isn't obviously damaging, we shouldn't go out of our way to try and stop that. So they would say, as long as there's kind of generally speaking positive forward momentum, because the Bible doesn't condemn on the premise of their first idea, this kind of relationship, then the church shouldn't either. 
Also, they would point to the fruit test of non-affirming theology. They would say when a church and when Christians don't create space for people to acknowledge that they're gay and then to give them a responsible expression for that sexuality within gay marriage, that you're kind of condemning people to a life of shame or a life of carrying a hardship that that many people aren't equipped uh, to bear. And so they would say, you know, they would point to the high rates of suicide and depression and alienation that a lot of people within the LGBT community would uh, speak to out of their experience. And they would say, see, uh, not all of it, but a lot of that is the fruit of society not giving them a way to get married, to be responsible. So they're kind of driven into promiscuity. They're not given a healthy channel. And so the church should be affirming and give them a way to get married so that we can reduce um, kind of this this chronic pain that they have to uh, bear. And last principle would kind of be love and liberation. This group, uh, this this view would have a very broad view of, well, no, no, they would have a very generous view of saying, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So we have to really put ourselves in the position, what if I was orientated to have same-sex attraction, I wanted to, I wanted to, um, I was going to be, let's say, celibate before marriage, and, but I wanted to get married and wanted to build a family and, and be a, a productive member of my community and my church. Um, does love, shouldn't love look like seeking to honor and respect that position? And we're not talking about someone who says, I want to be gay and be tremendously promiscuous and I want you to affirm every single direction that I go sexually. We're not saying that. We're saying the people who are actually saying, I want to channel my sexuality in a way that is responsible. I don't want to push it in people's faces. I simply want to live my life. And then if those people are Christian, also saying I want to live my life in a way that honors God. I don't want this to be the central issue. I just want to get married to someone that I love in Christ and then move forward. Also, Micah 6.8, this is pointed to a lot, right? God has shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so the affirming view will, will often say, this is what we're ultimately called to. This is kind of like the high watermark, justice, mercy, walk humbly with your God. If two consenting adults want to get married, who are, who's anyone to stop them? Especially in a liberal, secular, democratic society, it's not really that big of a deal. So justice and mercy and walking humbly can at least look like opening up a way for... Uh, people with same-sex attraction to, to get married. So those are very cursory introductions <laughs> to the two views. One is essentially going to say Scripture speaks to clearly to any and all forms of homosexual behavior regardless of intent, and that's why we land here, and it's held together by a narrative of heterosexual sexuality, which is seen as good and God-glorifying and affirmed again and again in ways directly and indirectly. The other side will say, yet the Bible does condemn certain expressions of homosexual activity, but not ones that are intended to be covenantal and long-term. So we can ignore those, not, not ignore them, but apply them only to the cases in which they apply. But to this case, we're kind of a new ground as it relates to what should the church's response to be in a situation where there was never this opportunity before. And they say, let's err. Even if we're going to err, let's err on the side of, of love and openness and grace and kind of let the Holy Spirit convict. So those, those, are the, those are the two positions. And that's why there are some churches that lean in this direction, and say, I'm swayed by that argument. And there are other churches, like the, the Covenant Church, uh, the denomination that we're a part of, that says, 
I, I just I don't think the weight, when you look at the, the totality of all the evidence, we, we can't get there. We have to hold to the traditional uh, biblical view on, on homosexuality because we do think Scripture speaks clearly, certainly in its implications for those who seek to follow Jesus. Okay, second question. How do we address the gay transgender issue as an individual and as a church to believers and to gay and transgender people that we come across? Okay, I'm going to do this one really, really quick. Number one, addressing it as a theological issue individually and as a church. Well, first of all, we better know what Scripture says. And again, not just the particular passages. You've got to read the whole thing, understand the metaphors, be immersed in this thing so that you can speak intelligently to the issue. I'm not impressed by anybody on either side of the debate who can shoot off their proof text. That's the easiest. That's kindergarten. We've got to be able to understand layers of interpretation. So you should expose yourself to wise gospel-centered teaching. I put a link in this Friday's summit. Is a video teaching on how the church should respond to transgender and intersex people by Andrew Wilson out of King's Church in the UK. Best 30 minutes you will spend is watching that. It's an excellent understanding of how to approach this issue with grace and compassion and biblically. Read people like Ron Sider. Don't just read people on the internet who are blogging. Remember, the internet gives a voice to all kinds of people, uh, including the uninformed and the unwise and the foolish and the stupid on both sides. And so you try and figure out what are the best people and the best arguments and the most gracious, mature arguments and well-informed arguments on both sides, and then you begin to wrestle with those. I will say, I think it's very important to avoid public activism. Um... And I would argue this for both sides, uh, actually. Um, But particularly for my side, too. I think I should have convictions. I think the church should have convictions. We should be empowered to share that when it's appropriate, when people ask for opinions on stuff. But political activism aimed at condemning homosexuality or homosexual marriage, I just don't think is wise. I don't think it's fruitful. Um, I take as my kind of social activism policy, 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is speaking to a group of Christians who are wondering, how do we deal with, now that we're Christian, we're committed to certain things, and there's people in our community who aren't. So do I still, like, hang out with them? Like, I have friends who aren't Christians, and now I'm, they're diametrically opposed in some ways to things that I am. So do I just drop them as friends? What about my coworkers? Do I have to change jobs? Do I have to change careers? What, uh, what does this mean? What are the implications of the fact that I'm now living for Jesus amidst people who aren't? Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Uh, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. I'm not talking about your non-Christian friends. Of course you still hang out with those people. Of course you still associate. They need to see Jesus. You need to be the aroma of Christ to them. You need to rub off on them. You need to, uh, in speaking the truth in love, with gentleness and respect, be there building relationships. You are to be Jesus' hands and feet. Of course you don't drop your non-Christian friends. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. Totally. I'm all for Jesus. But is sexually immoral? is greedy, is an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Double inference. No communion. And you, also, you don't have them over to your house. You don't eat with them. There is to be a kind of judgment and shunning, as it were, for people who carry the Lord's name in vain. I'm a Christian, but I'm kind of unrepentantly partying on Friday night. Or I'm unrepentantly 
uh, almost boastfully taking part in exploitive economic practices in my business. I rip people off. God's forgiven me. It's all good. I come on Sundays. I'm part of a Bible study. Paul says, that person, expel them from your midst. And then he says this in verse 12. What business of it, sorry, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God is going to judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. We as Christians are to be incubating a community of holiness within this church. Paul says, don't worry about trying to force other people who aren't Christians to be holy or to be Christian. You, you worry about this. Again, that doesn't mean you never speak to social issues or to political issues, or you never, but to spend so much money in terms of and time and energy and activism and trying to get non-Christians to, whether it's homosexuality or anything, to view it as you do, Paul says, that's foolish. Don't, don't judge and condemn those people. God, Holy Spirit's working out there. You just be involved in their lives. Uh, grace, love, speaking the truth, building relationships with non-Christians. Where you are called to judge, Christians aren't supposed to judge. 1 Corinthians 5, you are to judge and delineate and evaluate the behavior of other Christians in your midst. And if you find that there is a Christian in your midst, whether new Christian or established, who's intentionally, unrepentantly moving in a way uh, that is clearly counter to the gospel and counter to effective Christian witness, you are to discipline them. But I think a lot of Christians have completely inverted this command. We'll let a lot of stuff in the church slide and we'll go out there and police We'll be the moral police for society. Because it's a lot awkward. To do. I'll just show up to a gay pride parade with a placard so that they know I feel good about myself. I'm standing up for the truth. But I'm not calling someone in my church to repentance. Again, not out loud on a Sunday morning. But I'm not approaching them and confronting them because whatever. Maybe I've got sin. I don't want them to push back on me that they know that I'm doing. Or I just don't want it to get messy. So this, to me, is really, really big. We should be focused on our own holiness and our own maturity in Christ. That should dominate our... And not just, I don't just mean that individually. I mean that like us as a church, us who call ourselves brothers and uh, sisters in Christ. How do you address gay, uh, gay transgender people we come across? That's easy. You just address them like a human being. They're made in the image of God. That's the foundation of their identity. Their sexuality is not their identity. None of our sexuality is our identity. None of anything is our identity. Underneath everything is male and female created in the image of God. You are talking to an image bearer, and so everyone is to be addressed and to be interacted with with dignity and respect. There's no Christian justification for any kind of maligning, bullying, um, physically. If, If I found out that my kids were in some ways bullying or picking on or making fun of uh, uh, someone in their school who is gay, I would be just livid with them. That wouldn't be like, what are you going to do as kids? That is not okay. And so we should have the utmost respect and treat with dignity and respect every single person that we come across. And that includes our gay and transgender neighbors and family members. Uh, is it okay to bless a gay marriage with your participation in the celebration? It's a great question. I'm going to start with myself. I'm not allowed to via covenant policy. I'm not allowed to participate in any form, in any way, in the gay marriage ceremony. I can't give the homily. I can't give a benediction. I can't pray. I can't bless the couple in any way because the covenant, and this would be my view as well, sees participation in the ceremony 
as, um, as a way of celebrating what is happening. So I am allowed to attend, and as pastors, we're allowed to attend ceremonies in a way to show dig- dig- dignity and respect to those, especially family members maybe, but we're not allowed to participate. How that relates to you, I think, will very much be an issue of conscience for each person. I know Christians who would say, I feel like if I can't participate or say a blessing or say a blessing at the meal, that for me doesn't feel like I'm celebrating if I, if I hold to a traditional view. I just don't want to be rude and I want to show these people that I love them and I don't want to make a scene of things. So I'm willing to you know, accommodate. I, I totally understand that. Other people say, no, I, I can't even show up because they feel like their presence is an implicit um, celebratory posture. So I think, uh, you know, Hebrews thirteen eighteen says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So I think between Christians on this, my question would be, what for you allows you to have a, a clear conscience before God and saying, you're trying, to, you're trying to do the right and honorable thing to love your neighbors yourself. This is one of those areas where it's, it's very challenging to figure out what the most gracious, accommodating, Christ-like thing to do is. And so I'd say there's kind of a spectrum here in terms of, but, but I'm not allowed to participate in any way as a covenant pastor. My, my uh, hopefully, future ordination would be in jeopardy if I were to do that, but I can attend a ceremony. Okay, lastly, a family member or close friend comes out of the closet. How do you love them and at the same time tell them that a core part of who they are is wrong according to Christianity? Again, I want to parse through the language a little bit. I wouldn't use the language of a part of a core part of who they are is wrong to Christianity. That's conflating behavior or orientation with identity. And I think that's dangerous to do. I think that's something that the LGBT community pushes really hard. And I don't think that's always wise. There's lots of people who are... Um, have issues related to their sexuality, whether they're asexual, whether, whether they have predilection towards pedophilia, we would never say, well, that's a core part of their identity. And therefore, it's kind of an untouchable area. There's lots of places where we'd say, this doesn't define that person. It's certainly a part, an obvious part of who that person is, but that's not going to define how we treat, what we expect of them, how they move forward. Um, if they're a close family member or friend, they probably likely already know where you stand. And I'm, kind of, I'm speaking of this from a traditional point of view because I'm, I'm assuming if you're pro-affirming view, if they come out, you're going to celebrate it. This is really more only of attention if you hold to a biblical or traditional view. Um, they probably already know where you stand, so immediately reinforcing your position <laughs> on this is, I don't think it's gracious or helpful at all. Um, when someone's informing informing you of something, they're entrusting something to you, right? That's a tremendous level of vulnerability and a huge risk that is being taken to say, I struggle with this, whether the sexual sin is something like pornography or uh, greed or anything, right? It's hard just in a small group context to just say, I'm really, I have to admit something, I have to confess something. So when someone is saying, I'm I'm coming out of the closet, I want you to know that I struggle with same-sex attraction, or I'm confused about my sexuality. Um, we need to recognize there's been a, a huge buildup to that for them. They didn't wake up that morning and think, flip a coin, okay, I'll do it, it's no big deal. This is, this is a huge risk for them, and so we need to respond with an appropriate amount of sense of, like, this is, this is a sacred trust that this person has extended towards us. So what do we do? We listen and learn. Tell me what's brought you to this point. We want to be very, very, lots of listening, lots of listening. I want to understand where you're coming from, what's helped me to, to know. We might have seen certain things or there might have been pre-conversations to this, but lots of listening. 
Extend compassion. Again, understand that this is something that's very hard for this person to do in almost every situation. I think not initially, but eventually, you're going to have to just be honest with the person, family member or close friend, and just be honest. If, you, if it does make you uncomfortable or if you don't know how to feel about it, if you don't know what to do about it, let them know that. Like That's important for them to hear that you say, I don't know how I feel about this, or I'm angry about this, and I don't know why I'm angry about this, or I feel betrayed by this, and I don't feel like I should feel betrayed, but I just do. They just begin talking and be honest with the person and begin to journey together. But number four, this is really important. You've got to reinforce the relationship. I'm not leaving you. I love you. I want to understand more. Let's keep talking. You know, family member, hugs, kisses, love, support. That, that, that's really, really important. A, a lot of the, the hesitancy to actually share comes from the presumption that if I share, the relationship's off, my life is just going to, I'm just going to get thrown to the curb. And that has, had, that has happened to many people, not just within Christian families. But even the non-Christian families, they've been kind of kicked to the curb, literally and figuratively. And, uh, and so we need to reaffirm that relationship. And then if the person is a Christian and they're saying they're struggling with same-sex attraction, that kind of goes on a very different track than someone who's not a Christian. If they're not a Christian, you're going to continue to support them in just the way that you would in a normal relationship. You're not going to call them towards Christ-likeness. They haven't made that decision. You're going to just going to journey and figure out, have to go on a journey of what does it mean that this person has told me that they're gay now, let's say, um, but that probably shouldn't change too much in terms of your relationship. If that person is a Christian, then I think what does change is now you have to, not immediately, but over time, begin to start saying, okay, what does the pursuit of Jesus and the New Testament's called the holiness in Christ mean for you and your expression of sexuality? And hopefully, again, you begin to help resource that person with good arguments on both sides, see the best arguments. And begin, and, but I think it's really important for a Christian, because from a traditional standpoint, to say what we do is we put the bar towards honor and obeying Jesus and pursuing holiness in Christ before personal happiness because there's going to get a lot of messages that if, if, what, if you feel free, if this is what makes you feel happy, who's anybody to judge it? And that makes sense to me from a religious, for, 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 sorry, from a secular point of view, but that's not okay to be thinking as, as a Christian. We, we, don't, we don't get to think that way in any area of life. How do you deal with your money? Well, I deal with it this way, and I find that it, it feels very liberating, and I really enjoy it. That doesn't necessarily mean that what you're doing with your money is good or God-glorifying at all. So we always come back to, and if you've called yourself a Christian, you've now said, my sexuality, my finances, um, my vocation, everything is now under the lordship of Jesus. And so I don't get to pick and choose. And so if that person is a Christian, you begin to gently, with humility, with respect, uh, with gentleness, point them deeper into a relationship with Jesus. And you go on that journey too, because this is going to challenge you in different ways in terms of what it means to love. Let me finish with a quote by Ron Sider. And this relates to those of us who, um, those Christians who maybe might be tempted to reject a friend, or maybe even a child, because of them admitting that they struggle with same-sex attraction. He says, Christian families should never reject the child, throw her out of the home of, sorry, throw her out of the home, or refuse to see that child if the child announces that he is gay. One can and should approve of unbiblical behavior without refusing to love and cherish a child who engages in it. Christian families should be the most loving places for children, even when they disagree with and act contrary to what parents believe. 
Please, God, may we never hear another story of evangelical parents rejecting children who came out of the closet. I would say amen to that. So, no kind of clean way to close it, but I'm going to close here. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come up. And as they do, just a reminder, this is the start of a conversation. There's a lot that still hasn't been said today, nuances, but what about this? In these situations, what about these texts? This is the start of a conversation to get us moving in a healthy direction. I hope that there's been something here that has challenged all of us. Let's pray. God, we want to be a people who are under your authority, your lordship, and who are shaped by your truth, but not in such a way that we weaponize your truth against people who are living differently or who disagree with, who disagree with us. We want to be uh, instruments of righteousness instruments of of grace and mercy. So would you teach us how to come to biblical convictions about these things, but also deepen our compassion and love for those, whether it's this issue or or any other, um, our image bearers and who are uh, broken sinners just like us and help us um, to focus on you and extending your love and truth Uh, into our lives and theirs, God. This is a really, really challenging challenging issue, but it's also an opportunity for us to go deeper into you and deeper into the gospel. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.